Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Dr. Jason Weiner about his new book, Care and Covenant, a Jewish Bioethic of Responsibility, published by Georgetown University Press in 2022. The Jewish tradition has important perspectives, history, and wisdom that can contribute significantly to crucial contemporary healthcare deliberations. Care and Covenant a Jewish bioethic of responsibility demonstrates how numerous classic Jewish texts can add new ideas to the world of medicine today. Rabbi Jason Weiner draws on 15 years of experience working in a hospital as a practitioner to develop an ethic of responsibility. Rabbi Dr. Weiner, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'd wonder if we can start the interview and you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, um, I'm a rabbi. I'm also a chaplain and I also have a doctorate in clinical bioethics. I started as a rabbi. I was assistant rabbi at a synagogue here in Los Angeles, Young Israel Century City. And then um, the rabbi at the hospital before me, unfortunately, got sick. And I was just asked to fill in for him a little bit, never expecting to go into chaplaincy. Unfortunately, he didn't recover from that illness. And so I've been um, in chaplaincy ever since. Beautiful. And specifically with the book, how did you come to write this book? Well, as a you know, board-certified chaplain, my focus has really been on helping patients at the bedside, trying to navigate some of the dilemmas that they face, their families, and also the healthcare providers. And so really what I primarily was doing was learning as I would go and keeping notes and then kind of developing those notes into guidelines for myself. And then I realized that I needed to you know deepen my education and have a little bit more breadth to what I could provide for patients and staff. That's when I did a master's degree first in in bioethics and health policy, and then a doctorate. And really the book is my doctorate. I put together all of the articles that I wrote and the the chapters that I wrote um, and assignments that I wrote, which were based on what I thought was most needed by patients and staff in the hospital. Beautiful. That sounds great. And if we're going to start from the beginning, I think it's always good to start on the cover page and look at the title because I think it'd help us understand and unpack some ideas and themes within the book. So if we start for the, with the title and then we can go to the subtitle, 
care and covenant. What, what care? I can understand the connection to healthcare and to caring for patients. What's the connection to covenant here? Yeah, good question. I mean, I was trying to draw out the the importance of a bioethic of responsibility, right? The other part of that um, title. And you know, as I've been studying Jewish medical ethics and Jewish law more generally, I realized that there is a sort of ethic of responsibility, personal responsibility, social responsibility, communal responsibility. And I was trying to find a title that would convey that idea that there is a sort of demand of responsibility. But then as I was playing around with titles, I didn't want it to be to be too harsh. Like, you know, I felt like in some ways, this ethic of responsibility, it is very demanding. And I'm proud of that. I believe in that. I mean, I believe that we do have demands, ethical, moral demands on ourselves, but it's also broader. It's, it's demands to be kind and compassionate. And so I was trying to kind of show on the one hand, it's about caring, it's about compassion, but that there is a covenant, meaning that there are certain specific expectations that we have and that those guide and anchor that sense of compassion. And if we're drilling down a little bit on the subtitle, a Jewish bioethic of responsibility, you could have equally called it the Jewish bioethic of responsibility. So to what degree do you think that you've encapsulated, incorporate, incorporated all the wisdom, everything you need to know, or and to what degree is this more your thoughts and opinions on the subject? Yeah, it's a great question. See, it's not like there's a, you know, a tractate in the Talmud of bioethics. You know, so it's a little bit complicated to be able to say, like, this is the official. There isn't even a section you know, in the Shulchan Aruch. There is a little bit. We do have, a, we do have some, some guidance for a few cases. But a lot of this is distilling you know, thousands of years of Jewish wisdom to try to show how it's relevant in our era. So I, I don't know that I could be so haughty as to say, like, this is the official perspective. It's more like, what Jewish wisdom do we have that can provide guidance? I think there's a lot. It's an incredible how our tradition can provide so much guidance for such contemporary and complex dilemmas that we face. But it's a lot of it is trying to tease out those values. And so, you know, I, I'm just one person. And even though I relied on much greater people than myself to develop these ideas, uh, there are different ways that different people could go with these ideas. So I, I can't, I couldn't say that it's the bioethic of responsibility. Uh, that's fair enough. And if we're going to go and picking up one, what you just said, you're relying on greater people than yourself, teachers, different halachic decisors. Who, who are those influences? Who are those people who you look up to, look up to, uh, go to for, for guidance and for their wisdom? Yeah, that's a, that's important. The, there's a number. I mean, I, I did decide, you know, at a certain point that like there's so many different perspectives. I have to kind of choose which which is the most mainstream, the most authoritative, what makes the most sense to me, has actual experience in hospitals. Um, for many years, I've really focused on the teachings of Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Arbach as it relates to medical halacha, medical ethics. I found it to be very inspiring and to make a lot of sense very well-grounded. Um, in my own life, I've become very connected to Rabbi Usher Weiss, who is now the posek of Shari Tzedek Medical Center in Jerusalem and has been publishing really extensively on these topics. And I've consulted with him extensively. Also, Dr. Abraham Steinberg, who's really been an incredible inspiration to me. And then I tried in this book, you know, there was Dr. Andrew, um, there's a, there a number of people, but one actually I'll say first is um, Dr. Jonathan Sachs. Um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Sachs and a doctor, you know, a PhD, um, his thinking um, is so inspiring and so profound and so relevant. He had not written a lot, though, on medical ethics per se. 
But I felt like as I read his work that so much of Chivit was relevant for the work that I do in the hospital, that I also wanted to try to show how his writing and how his thinking could be could be relevant for Jewish medical ethics. That's a great list of, of inspiring individuals who you can see their, their impact on the book, um, both from what's actually written about them. And I think also just generally speaking, their impact is, is seen and felt. If we're going to look and think a little bit about your previous work. So you mentioned before that this is in some ways based on your PhD. Some other articles you've written have, have made their way into the book in different forms. How does this differ from your previous work? You've written other books. How, how is this different? How is it similar to those other books? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, first of all, my other books were primarily guidebooks, meaning they were trying to distill halachic issues and guidance based on my experience in the hospital and the writings of different rabbinic and medical figures and try to provide specific, you know, bullet pointed guidelines and, um, you know, walk people through the best practices in the hospital. In this book, I'm, first of all, it's not as much of a guidebook because it's more trying to articulate general principles. It's on a higher level in terms of like, you know, um, policy level, even sometimes government policy or hospital policy, not necessarily the more nitty gritty in, of the hospital work at the bedside, even though it does go there. And also, you know, I've been very careful um, to rely on people much, much greater than myself with much more experience than myself. Whereas in this book, I did take the liberty at some times, just because I've been doing this for a while now, and I started to have some ideas to also include much more of my own ideas. And so every chapter I didn't, I felt like, what's the point of writing a chapter if I don't have something to add? So in this book, I'm, it's, it's, I have some new ideas to add to each discussion. Yeah, and I, I, could, I could see that in, in the book and your ideas were, were very interesting and, and thought provoking. If we're going to think, and let's actually um, discuss something we were just saying before that some of the material came from elsewhere. So for example, one of the chapters, uh, I think it's the first chapter you had published previously. If we're thinking about that chapter and in general, other material in this book that was published elsewhere, how did you incorporate it? How did, how did, how did you, or did you edit it and change it to, to be in this book in order to make it more coherent and, and to all flow and fit together? How does that process work for you? Well, the things that I had published beforehand, first of all, some of them were for specific purposes, let's say for different journals. And those journals had very specific goals. So um, whether like some journals I wrote in said they want no footnotes. Others said they want this to be focused for a specific community. And once I had the chance to repurpose them for this book, I finally said, okay, look, now I have the opportunity to expand on them and really expand the footnotes or expand the, the, the focus of the article. Also, the, those that I had written before and published before I published this book were primarily published before COVID. And then I published this book after COVID. And there's a, there was a, you know, a wealth of new information of creativity that was you know, instigated by the pandemic because we were forced to, you know, focus on these principles and how to apply them in difficult situations. And so I found that many of the chapters that had been published beforehand, I got to look at them anew in the light of the pandemic and also the new literature that was being published as a result and kind of really expand on them in that way. So even though some of the chapters were published before, they were really expanded for the book and a lot of new material became um, relevant for, for the book. 
I sometimes feel like, you know, almost, you know, there's with, when it comes to medical ethics, there's like a BC, you know, and an AC, like before Corona and after Corona, it's sort of like, you know, when I read medical ethics now, it's oftentimes I'm like, I want it to be written after 2022, at least because just so much new material came out that it, it, it it's, it's to be relevant. It, it needs to have taken into account the things we experienced in the last few years. 100%. The book itself is a little over a hundred pages, but it's packed with content in the text itself within the footnotes. When you think about what you included, I think it's also important to think about and to discuss what you didn't include. What were the things that you thought maybe you wanted to include, but you decided to leave out? And how did you make that decision? Well, it is a challenge. I mean, the, the challenge for me is that, you know, I'm not an academic who's sitting and writing books, right? I didn't take a sabbatical to write the book. You know, I, I'm a practitioner. My main focus is being at the bedside with patients in the hospital every day and running my department and my synagogue. And, you know, um, the book is I felt like, you know, if I can help people through the writing, because I'm writing it anyways, you know, both for classes and because for myself, the way I learn is through writing down ideas and taking notes and can give myself guidance that I often look to when I'm facing difficult situations. And I want to look back at my notes and remind myself of strategies. So a lot of it was sort of like, there wasn't a lot that I left out because it was a lot of it was like, do I even have enough for a book here? Just because I'm not focused on sitting and writing a book. This was written primarily in between meetings or late at night when I was falling asleep or early in the morning if I woke up early. Um, but the main focus on what I didn't include was just like, is this relevant for practitioners at the bedside? I don't want to be just in the realm of theory. I have a little bit of writing where it's very theoretical. And um, I, I felt like, you know what, this is meant to be specific and really provide guidelines and guidance. And so that's what I concluded. That's what I included. With the book itself, and you in some ways hinted to this before, the audience is not a Jewish audience per se, certainly not an Orthodox Jewish audience. Why would they care about Jewish ethics, about halakha, about Jewish law? What's the connection? Why should they think that it's relevant for them and their own practice? Right. On, on the one hand, maybe they don't care. They don't, they don't have to care. I, mean, I don't force, I don't want anyone to feel like Jude, Jewish law or Judaism is expecting non-Jews or other people to feel obligated to listen to it. I, I, I'm not trying to push it on anybody. On the other hand, there are a lot of great thinkers out there in the world today, especially outside of the Jewish community, who are very passionate about their religions and feel that their religious perspectives can have a really important impact on the world. And they're not shy about sharing those perspectives, whether it's in government policy and lobbying or just simply sharing ideas with the broader world because they feel that their religious perspectives um, are, are very wise and have a lot to say and they want to see the, that impact our broader culture. And I sort of felt like, wh why aren't Jewish thinkers sharing our ideas with the world, not with the goal of converting people or telling them that we're right and they're wrong, but simply that there's a conversation happening and Jewish wisdom has a lot to add to that conversation. And the conversation is happening with or without us. So we should be sharing our perspective on these ideas because I do think that we have some unique ideas to add to conversations. And it's a shame if we're not sharing them. And also we live in this world too. Like if we, we we're part of the world and if we want to be, be part of a world that reflects at least some of our values, we should be sharing those values with the world because we want to have an impact on that broader conversation. So I was trying to do that. And that's actually why I, I went with Georgetown University Press. I wanted to go with an academic publisher that's prominent in the 
ethics and the and the bioethics world. And I wanted it to reach people that are reading about bioethics, but not necessarily looking for what does Judaism say about this. But then they see, oh, here, let's see. Okay, I guess someone has a perspective on these topics from a Jewish perspective, but it's a topic that's relevant for my work in the hospital. Maybe let's see what they have to say. You know, I wanted I want to hopefully be relevant, you know, as broadly as possible. And what's been the reception? How has the reception been like? It has been good. You know, it's interesting because people have shared. First of all, um, it's been interesting that I have ha- got some feedback from Jews who don't normally read Jewish books. And they told me that it made them proud to be Jewish, which was touching because it's not at all the goal. This is not like meant to be a Kiruv book or I'm trying not trying to like push Judaism on anyone. As I said, I'm just trying to share Jewish wisdom with the world in a way that makes sense. But some people have responded that like, oh, I didn't realize that Judaism has something to say about this topic or that topic. And I found what it has to say to be interesting and inspiring. And it, now I can use this in my work and it helps me to feel like more Jewish in what I do. So that was really interesting. And uh, from the non-Jewish bioethics world, what I what I heard primarily was like, oh, I didn't know that Judaism says this. Like the little bit that I'd heard, I, I had misconceptions about Judaism, and this is helping to clarify them. And so it's at least, you know, I, I've been happy to hear that. And, um, you know, I'm still in the beginning processes of trying, you know, the Jewish world has been my, is my community. And so that's been the primary um, readership. And I'm really trying to um, help the book to be read more broadly. And, and it's starting to happen. And I'm, I'm happy to hear good feedback. That's great to hear. So I want to dig a little bit into the chapter. So there's eight main chapters, and then there's a conclusion thereafter. And we'll give a taste of, of some of the, the different content there, but in a broader sense. And let's pick up on what you just said, that some people, there's misconceptions out there. People think that Judaism has one view, but really it's multiple views. Maybe it's a different view. What have been some of those misconceptions that, that you've heard either before or after the book came out? And how have you, with this book and the content, how have you clarified, busted the myths? How have you made things a bit more clear? Yeah, th- there's, a, there's a lot. It's interesting. Um, you know, there's been, there's been misconceptions that uh, religion prohibits its practitioners from being involved in lots of different types of medical care. And therefore, if someone's religious, they can't take part in much of what happens in intensive care, in urgent end of life care, in fertility treatments, in, in different types of, you know, that religious people have to step out of those conversations and can't, can't take part and can't take part as medical practitioners. And therefore, it might even be beneficial for observant um, individuals, religious individuals, not to go into healthcare because there's too many potential pitfalls. And one of the ways I've been, you know, one of the things that I focus on in this book is, you know, the issue of conscientious objection and, and where, um, on the one hand, it's important to, you know, maintain our moral integrity. On the other hand, there is so much room for being involved in so many types of interventions that many people did not think they could be involved in because they thought it goes against their religion, whereas they actually can be taking part in providing supportive care. I'll give you an example. And this is an example that actually Rev. Usher Weiss said here at our hospital at a lecture he gave for doctors and healthcare staff. And I saw that it had such a big impact that I thought I, that's when I realized I want to write about this, which was when um, an anesthesiologist at our hospital who is called to do all sorts of interventions with anesthesiology, but oftentimes it is included, includes um, pregnancy termination. 
And this anesthesiologist said to him, you know, uh, I'm sometimes not even sure what I'm going to get called to. Then all of a sudden I get called and I, and I, and at the last second, I, I can't back out and I'm having, I'm struggling. And my staff, you know, oftentimes gets upset at me because I'm telling them I can't do this, but there's no one else to back me up. And the patient is sometimes very critical and we need an anesthesiologist urgently. Um, so what should I do? And Rav Asher Weiss said, well, what do you mean? You, you could be providing this service. You, you, you don't have to back out because what are you doing when you provide anesthesiology? You're providing comfort. There's no prohibition against providing comfort to someone, even when they're doing an action, the surgeon is doing an action that might not be allowed by Jewish law. And on the other hand, it actually might be allowed in certain circumstances that we're not, you don't realize that it's allowed. Um, so too, when it came to physician aid in dying, that's legal here in California and in a number of other states and countries. And at that same conference, I remember, you know, our main question for him, and I wrote about this in the book as well, was um, what do we do when an observant patient asks for physician aid in dying. I mean, obviously we can't be involved with that. So, so can we make a referral to someone else? He said, why are you making a referral to someone else? If you make a referral to someone who is very supportive of it and encouraging of it, you know, that might even be worse. Meaning why don't we need practitioners who have a sense of moral obligation, moral duties, and concerns about Jewish law and Jewish values to be there at the bedside to have full conversation with patients instead of having, instead of just shirking our duties and giving it over to someone else who's not going to have the same concerns that we have and therefore might be more encouraging. He, he said, you don't have to go in there and immediately encourage them not to, but you should have a full conversation with them, exploring the full range of concerns and therefore you should be involved. And, and that was a major area of misconception to answer your question, where many practitioners felt like, oh, I just have to not be involved in all these questions. And I tried to show how actually in many, many cases, healthcare practitioners can be involved and actually should be involved. That's a fascinating story and, and misconception that you that you busted. If we're going to look at the, the content of the book, and let's discuss something you were saying before that COVID-19 and the pandemic was really instrumental in, in, in your thought and, and so much literature came out that, that made you think and, and made the medical world write a lot. So if we're going to think about the first chapter in some ways addresses it, but we can go beyond that. What have you learned from the pandemic and the literature about it? And how has it come up in the book? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I really tried not to make the book about COVID. First of all, it, it's not, it's not about COVID. And I knew that I also know that, you know, the pandemic, pandemics end at a certain point and we try to move on. And so I wanted to write a book that is relevant beyond the pandemic. So even when I used literature and ideas from the pandemic, it was simply ideas and new insights that thinkers and rabbis have developed because of being challenged by the pandemic that can be relevant long, well beyond and outside of the pandemic. So I try not to mention COVID too much, first of all, I mean, just as a, as a caveat. And it's, the book is definitely not about COVID or the pandemic, but it is true that we were forced to think about things, whether that was with allocation and distribution of scarce resources, a triage, whether that was at that time for the vaccine or ventilators, but which I tried to expand well beyond to utilize in our everyday healthcare environment, or the first chapter, which you're talking about, which had to do with self-endangerment and medical experimentation, which, you know, in the pandemic, that was relevant. I still remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, deciding, like, should I be visiting COVID patients here in the hospital when it was very new, very scary, and we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And I did decide, you know, I'm going to go in based on, you know, halachic 
discussions. And one of the first patients that I visited, I was motivated to go in because his family called me and said, you know, we're not allowed to go in. He's a Holocaust survivor and he's really thirsty and his nurse only goes in every so often. And it's obviously very triggering for a Holocaust survivor to be thirsty and alone in the hospital. So I was motivated to go in. So I was there with him. And um, his nurse told me when I went in, because I told her why I was going in. She said, you're welcome to give him some water if he asks for it. So um, I gave him water to drink. I'm there with him with this COVID patient at the very beginning of the pandemic. And then he was so thirsty that he drank the water, you know, ravenously and then coughed it all over me. And it was like dripping down inside the PPE, you know, into my shirt. I felt my skin was wet with all this COVID water. I was like, oh no, I'm going to die. Uh, you know, we didn't, you know, I, I was so scared. And then I started thinking like, is this right? Should I be endangering myself? Like, is it right? Yes, he is alone and he's lonely and he needed water, needed support, he needed compassionate, personalized care. But should I give my life for that? You know, that was the big question. So like that chapter was about, and there's been many examples through modern Jewish history. In fact, the cover of the book is addressed in that chapter. The cover of the book was a Dr. Jesse Lazar, who's not well known. I only knew about him because there's a huge mural in our hospital called Jewish Contributions to Medicine, which which has pictures of thirty the 36 greatest, according to the people who made the mural, at least, the 36 greatest Jewish physicians in history, starting with Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses from the Bible, and going through all the way actually to the future. But one of those people is Dr. Jesse Lazar, who, just to make the long story short, he discovered the first, he discovered a virus, what a virus is. He, he developed that and figured out what a virus is, how it's transmitted. And he actually gave his life for the cause because he infected himself with the virus in order to prove that it was transmitted at that time through mosquitoes, but through through um, viruses, what how it works. And he ended up dying by being infected by the virus that he was researching, but he was awarded posthumously a, a Congressional Medal of Honor because this breakthrough helped cure so many diseases through human history. So was that justifiable, right? So these types of questions um, were inspired by the pandemic in, certain, in some ways, you know, like through viruses, but it becomes relevant through, through all sorts of questions, you know, should we and how much should we be risking our lives for the sake of others? And that's a really important question that comes up all the time. And the chapter that comes after, um, so the, the first chapter is about self-endangerment. We've co covered a little bit about allocation of resources. The third chapter for me was one of the most interesting about universal health care. Can you explain to our readers, give them a taste. We want them to read the book, but is there a Jewish approach to universal health care? What are the different sources that one can garner in order to build such a case, if there is one? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. 
Yeah, it's interesting because obviously, you know, this is a governmental type of question in some ways. I mean, you could argue it's communal. It could be just simply that it's communal and Jewish communities have taken upon themselves for thousands of years to have communal Beaker Cholim societies where they take care of their own poor and they and they nurse them and they take care of the sick. And so we see that value has existed throughout all of Jewish history. Um, it's difficult always coming up with something that's kind of a governmental policy issue. What does Jewish law say when we haven't had a discussion about that since we've had a commonwealth, you know, for 2000 years, though we have now 75 years of Israeli, you know, precedent to play upon. And the rabbis have discussed this and Israel has developed a universal health care system that the rabbis have discussed at length. What I wanted to add to it was simply, you know, I sort of realized at a certain point that many rabbis take very seriously the verse with which we are commanded to care for the sick. And most people think, oh, that must be, you know, verapo yurape. You shall surely heal that um, in the book of Exodus, we talk about that you have to heal the sick. And there's other verses, you know, that you have to be very careful to guard your soul, to guard your health. And people think, oh, maybe that's one of the verses that or you should live by them. These are all verses that we think um, provide the um, obligation in Jewish law to care for the sick. But actually, most rabbinic sources take most seriously a totally different verse which is v'hashevotah lo, you, shall, re, you sh- sh- shall surely return it to them, which is returning lost objects. But the rabbis said that actually it's not just about returning objects that were lost. It's also about returning someone's well-being, someone's health. If that's lost, we're obligated to return it to them. And so I sort of realized at a certain point, and as based on rabbinic literature, that they take this so seriously that once you start to analyze the different laws of when you have to return a lost object, when you don't have to return it, how you have to return it, and what way you have to return it, that that can actually has implications for what ways in which a society is expected to return an individual's health. And it has very fascinating ramifications um, about what can be expected upon either a society, a community, or even a government in terms of how we return a person's lost items, their health. And is there an obligation or is there a right to healthcare? Like, do we have a right to have our objects returned to us? Or is there an obligation of society to return lost objects? And how might that play out when it comes to, you know, helping society as a whole? Yeah, it is really, I think, inspiring and very interesting to read. I'd recommend that one, certainly, as well as the book as a whole. Thank you. The next chapter is Jewish Hospitals in America, Chapter 4. The book itself is, is not a history book. Why did you decide to include this chapter and what can we learn in general from Jewish hospitals in America? Thank you. Yeah, um, you're right. It's not a history book, but I did. Fi- I, I find in general that, you know, Jewish history is very inspiring and Jewish history can play a precedent. I mean, obviously it's not Jewish law, but still to know what our ancestors did and why they did it can inform some of our thoughts today. And we should be looking at the past so that we can think about, you know, why we are where we are and what we can do and and how we can implement them. And um, you're right that I, I, I thought about not including the chapter, but the reason I included it is a few, a few things. Number one, Jewish hospitals have a very unique role in American, in the tapestry of American healthcare. Just like, you know, Catholic hospitals have a major role in contemporary healthcare in, in America and beyond, um, Jewish hospitals have a unique role and a unique mission, a unique history. And it's, they're declining. There were 113 Jewish hospitals in America, and now there's less than 10. 
And so on the one hand, I felt it's a story that needs to be told because it's easily forgotten, but also because it, it is different than other faith-based hospitals and it has ramifications. And I think that the idea of how Jewish hospitals work, the, the, I, the sense of inclusivity, of remembering what it was like to be persecuted, and the sense also of being a religious hospital where faith is very strongly encouraged and welcomed and embraced, but not enforced, makes it a unique type of faith-based hospital that I think needs to be recognized and, re and, and thought about because it's becoming very, very um, common to have faith-based hospitals, but it's a turnoff for a lot of people and it's becoming sometimes a source of conflict. And I think Jewish hospitals and, and really half of the chapter is not just about the history, but what it means today and what it can mean to us. And so I felt like it should be included both because it's an interesting history but it has practical ramifications and practical suggestions that can be incorporated not just at Jewish hospitals. It can be incorporated much more broadly than just at Jewish hospitals. And so I thought it was a story that, that should be told in it. And it hadn't been told, you know, I've been really researching it for a lot of years because I was curious myself. I work at a Jewish hospital. And so I had a lot of uh, research on the topic and I felt like I have a story to tell about it and my own experience. And so I thought um, I wanted to share that since it hasn't been shared so fully in other contexts. There's probably another book to be written there. De definitely. The next couple chapters are Brain Death and Conflict Mitigation, Chapter 5, and then Chapter 6 is Unrepresented Patients. If you take these together, what have you learned? What, what can you teach the readers or the listeners of this podcast about how practitioners, how hospitals as a whole can inter interact with patients? And and going back to what we said in the beginning, this book isn't just directed to, to Jews, to Orthodox Jews. So what can the Jewish tradition teach us about these different topics? Yeah, these are topics that come up a lot in the most complex and um, stressful situations in hospitals when either you have a patient who's been declared dead by neurological criteria, brain dead, and their family or community does not accept that, but you are a healthcare provider and you're trying to figure out how to navigate this complicated situation where you or your hospital or your government has declared a patient dead that they still think, their family still thinks is alive. And, um, and also the situation of unrepresented patients, patients for whom we don't know anything about them. We're trying to care for them respectfully and appropriately. And sometimes we don't even know their names, not to mention anything about their values. And if we really want to be appropriate healthcare providers that, you know, hopefully people go into healthcare because they want to show compassion and justice and care, and they want to really be there for people in their times of need and make the world a better place. So we do have to think about, even if we disagree with someone, how they live their life or how they see the world, how can we be most compassionate and also work with them in a way that can be, um, that, that actually works and, and can be strategically um, appropriate such that we can provide care for them, but also navigate. So, you know, when it comes to brain death, um, we have a lot of experience here in my hospital and thankfully we've been able to navigate this and provide compassionate care and, and not have it escalate to the level of significant conflict or has to go to court and um, where it breaks down into sometimes even violence. We've been able to avoid that, but it's a challenge and it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of relationship building, um, compassion, and really hearing the other person, understanding their perspective. Same thing when it comes to unrepresented patients, which has not been written about a lot in Jewish literature. 
But yet there's so much to say that Jewish values can provide. And so I just felt that um, there, there are so many Jewish values that are relevant here and so much experience that we've had in the hospital at the bedside that I felt it's really important to provide that experience and frame it in a Jewish way because it hasn't been in the past. And I felt that it can be an inspiring way to help people feel that their tradition is guiding them in these challenging situations because our tradition really does call upon us to um, do, do go to our utmost to provide that sensitive care and try to really understand who people are, where they're coming from and what they need at this time and how we can be um, totally, truly inclusive and respectful to them. Definitely. In chapter seven, you write about conscientious, conscientious objection. I think for me, this really brought to the fore this idea of Jewish bioethic of responsibility. And here, I think in some ways, responsibility is to oneself and, and one's own ethics. How have you seen this play out within your, within your own career in terms of conscientious ob- objection, whether that's in the book or not? And how do you think about this in a more general sense in terms of clashes of, of, of ethics? And how do you take those different opinions, different approaches, and hopefully make everything work and have everything work out. There's just, you know, there's so many value-laden decisions that happen in hospitals, right? It's not just an auto mechanic, right? I mean, nothing against auto mechanics, but um, it, it's it's not just a place where, you, where a person comes to get a tune-up or just fix a body. I mean, these are human beings and there's there it's an art. You know, medicine is an art, right? There's oftentimes multiple decisions that have to be made and multiple options. And oftentimes we have to choose the least bad decision, right? So it's not, often not a, not a really easy, obvious choice. And so it can be really morally um, stressful and overwhelming. And, you know, there's significant dilemmas and that can cause also moral injury because it's so challenging. And, and, and we have such great people that go into healthcare because they are so compassionate and they want to help people. But then this moral injury kind of prevents them either from providing compassionate care because they become jaded or it just encourages them to leave the profession altogether or not go into it. So I'm really trying to find approaches and perspectives that help people navigate and and principles. So the principle there, for example, is the two sides of the river idea and where, you know, actions happen that they cannot happen without me. And therefore I am moving something from one side of the river to the other side of the river. And I'm, I'm central in that decision and therefore have to be really careful about what I do and how I act versus decisions that happen that I'm on the same side of the river as what's happening metaphorically. And therefore it will happen without me anyways. And therefore I have to think instead, not about how I'm going to oppose it or if I need to oppose it, but yet how I can be involved in the way that's most in consonance with my own values and most appropriate. And I can be providing care that um, makes sense to me and to the to the patient, but in a way that I I, I can still take part in it. So I mean, it, it, I, there's a lot more to say, but I mean, so you have to read the chapter, I guess, is that's our theme. But um, it, it, the goal is to find principles to help people navigate these because it's just so challenging. But we do have the principles and the guidelines within Jewish tradition. Definitely, and echoing that point, people should go out and get the book because there's there's a lot more here that we're not covering. Just trying to give a taste of that, yeah. you can give an idea. The, the last chapter of the book before the conclusion is self-care in challenging times. We can discuss a little bit the content, but I want to also understand why this chapter as a conclusion, why was this the last chapter before the actual conclusion of the book? 
I've just felt like I spent a whole book making demands on people and telling them, you know, here's how far we have to go for others. And here's how careful we have to be about their respect, their dignity, their, you know, and, and here's how much a society has to go and a hospital has to go and a rabbi has to go, you know, and, and I was being so um, encouraging of that. And at the same time, you know, and again, it's not about the pandemic, but I was working in a hospital during a pandemic and watching people burn out and get overwhelmed and, and suffer. And I just thought to myself, how can I write a whole book about making demands on people and not think a little bit also about how to care for ourselves and how to last in, in this profession when it is so demanding? And on the one hand, yeah, there are demands, but there must be limits to our demands. I mean, I, I can't just write a whole book ab about um, obligations and not think about like how far do our obligations go there there are limits and there only so much can be expected and we need to articulate that you can't just say do as much as you can and of course okay if you can't do something you can't you're only human i mean i, I felt like it's important to actually articulate and try to even quantify what it means to care for oneself and how to really help people first of all justify that, that they can feel a sense of like, it's okay to recognize that there's limits, but then how to make those limits and, and, and carve them out. Beautiful. I think that's a great way to, to conclude. If we're going to zoom out the, from the actual content and the chapters and think more broadly, was there any chapter that was particularly difficult for you to write, whether from an emotional perspective, intellectual perspective, anyone which gave you the most challenge? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, a lot of it, because as I said, I'm trying to apply ideas that I heard either, you know, from Rabbi Sachs that he didn't write about bioethics and trying to apply his ideas or Dr. Benjamin Friedman, who I mentioned in the book, who, who articulated this bioethic of responsibility, who I wanted to, I'm trying to like think, what would they say today? These great people who are no longer with us, the, the chapter on unrepresented patients and unidentified patients who, you know, we deal with a lot in the hospital. It was a big challenge for me just because there have been no Jewish writings on the topic. I mean, I really searched. There was, there was nothing written on the specific question of how to care for patients who we don't know anything about their own values. And, um, and there's no one to advocate for them. There's no family around. There's nothing. And we're trying to care for them the best of our ability. And I'm doing it so much in the hospital. It's, it comes up so frequently. But I th said to myself, you know, as I researched it, I researched it only because I wanted to find guidance for myself. I wasn't planning to write on it. But when I saw that there was nothing written on the topic and I started to think about it more and more and more and started to have some ideas on it, I, I realized I needed to write about it. But that's a big challenge because, uh, you know, I, I, I need precedent to build on. I, there's people much greater than me that I want to rely on and go to them for guidance. And then maybe I can add a little idea here and there, but to come up with my own idea from scratch and develop it and research it, that, that was a challenge. And um, I felt good about what I produced as a result. I mean, I think it could still be improved. And, I, and that's why I wanted people to read the book so they can share with me feedback and ideas that, and, and hopefully it can, can be improved. And one day I want to write, write a second edition, you know, but um, it's just to start the conversation at least from a Jewish perspective. And, um, and that was a big challenge, but thank you for asking about that. And hopefully the conversation continues with the book itself. I wanted to give it, as I said, give a taste. And I think we've given a good idea of different chapters, the content therein. Is there anything else you want to add? Anything that we've left out that you think could be helpful to tell our listeners? I think that the key is simply, you know, that we rely on each other at the end of the day. We ultimately rely on each other. I mean, I talked, I mentioned, you know, government, we mentioned different things, but 
end of the day, we have each other, right? We have our communities. And my, my main point is that, you know, I, I mentioned a story in the book. I mentioned a lot of stories, but I mentioned a story without going into the details about uh, a woman who had a dream her whole life to be a doctor. And it, she had to go through a lot of self-sacrifice for that dream. And, um, you know, she really worked hard at that dream. And she had a colleague in medical school who she got to know who, um, you know, they both had struggled through medical school, but they made it. And she ended up getting the same residency as him. And on her first day of her residency, she was assigned to the operating room. And her shift began right after his shift ended. And as she's getting all scrubbed up and in her, you know, wearing her, you know, medical uniform and she's ready to go in there to first start caring for patients. She has so much excitement. She's literally shaking with excitement to start, you know, putting into practice what she's learned. And she sees her classmate walking out of the emergency room like he just seen a ghost and he's overwhelmed. He's in shock and he's exhausted. And he says to her, don't go in there. I mean, you don't, you sure you're what you're going to see right now. It's, it's, it's a nightmare. And she looks at him and she says, you know, what, what do you mean? I, we've been training our whole lives to care for people. There's people who are sick and in, and suffering and in need, and I'm trained to help them. This is not a nightmare. This is my dream. And she goes in there and she begins caring for the sick and helping people. And this is really the goal I'm trying, what I'm trying to communicate in the book about the dream, the, the, I, how beautiful it can be when we are dedicated to our communities, to our, to people in need, to those who are vulnerable and Jewish values and Jewish wisdom has so much to offer to, to inspire us and guide us in caring for those in need. And so the real, the main message that I want to share is that, you know, we are obligated to care for each other. We need it because sometimes we need others. You know, there's been times when we are sick and we are vulnerable and we believe in rights. We ultimately do have rights, but those rights come from the fact that we have obligations to help for those who are in need. And so um, I just want to emphasize the, the idea that, you know, whenever there's struggles in the world and we, we live in complicated times in the world, right? But ultimately we rely on each other, on our communities, and we try to train to best care for those in need and to be responsible for those who are struggling and suffering. And thankfully, Judaism inspires us and teaches us to care for them. And, and our communities, therefore, can be great means of support. And hopefully these ideas can um, inspire those in the entire world to, you know, just be inspired to care for others and treat those, everyone, um, with compassion and respect and dignity. Amen. I, I hope so as well. I really appreciate it. I've taken up a lot of your time. On the New Books Network, we have a traditional closing question I would love to ask you. What are you working on next? Yeah, my challenge is that, you know, I'm, I'm not an author. Yeah, I've written three books, but I'm not, I never sat down to write a book and said, okay, here's my next book. Here, I'm going to write it. And they just, I, you know, I, I write them in buckets, you know, 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. So I have a few books I'm working. You know, I have a lot of stories and encounters that I've experienced in the hospital and I always take, keep a journal. I would really love to put those stories into a book, you know, obviously protecting confidentiality, but trying to share what I've learned and both inspiration that I've seen, the incredible resilience that people show and inspiration and miraculous stories I've experienced, and also the mistakes that I've made as a chaplain that I can learn from and grow from. So I want to write a book of my stories. And also I'm trying to write right now, I'm actually focused on producing um, a guidebook for healthcare professionals that's very specific. Jewish law in the hospital, if you are a healthcare professional, 
what can you do both on Shabbat and uh, you know holidays or Kashrut or all the different questions that come up for healthcare Jewish healthcare professionals? A specific guidebook. There's also a dearth in the literature, and so I'm trying to finish publication on that right now. I look forward to it. Hopefully, we'll speak again to discuss those books uh, when they when they're published. Love to. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Rabbi Dr. Jason Weiner, author of Care and Covenant, A Jewish Bioethic of Responsibility, published by Georgetown University Press in 2022. Happy reading, my friends. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.